Hello and welcome to Mother Bodies, the podcast about health after birth and why it matters. I'm your host, Rosie Taylor. I'm a health journalist and I'm also a mum. In this series, I'm asking some brilliant, wise and witty guests to share their thoughts on how the politics of postnatal health affects us all and the big ideas which could change our lives for the better. Most importantly, we'll also be sharing our own stories of health and recovery after birth and our honest experiences of motherhood. That's because it's only by sharing our stories that we can empower each other to ensure we all know what to expect and to make sure we all get the care and support we need, both after birth and throughout motherhood. This is Mother Bodies. So today I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Jessica Cox. Jess is a reader in English literature at Brunel University in London. And if you're thinking, what on earth has that got to do with postnatal health? Well, she specializes in Victorian literature and culture, and her research includes studies into pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding in the Victorian period. Her book, Confinement, the Hidden History of Maternal Bodies in 19th Century Britain, will be published by the History Press next year. I should probably declare an interest. I'm a massive geek for everything Victorian, so I'm so excited to be talking to you about this. But I'm really interested to know how our treatment of women after birth and that postnatal period has changed since Victorian times. What practices did they have back then that we don't have now? Well, it was very much dependent on class status and wealth, how you were treated in the postnatal period. So for middle and upper class women, there was an expectation that you would rest for two weeks. And that was often complete rest, no reading, no writing, staying in bed. It's a really interesting time, actually, when you look at the lives of Victorian women, because uh, this was obviously supposed to benefit them and to aid their recovery. But what you find is with some women, that two week period following birth is often a kind of precursor to postnatal mental health problems. Right. So you can see women getting quite depressed during this period. It happened with Catherine Dickens. It happened to some extent with Queen Victoria herself. And then as soon as they're allowed out and they're allowed outside the house and they're allowed to socialise, then you see this improvement in their mental health. So that period of called confinement was not necessarily beneficial to women, but it was something that was quite strictly imposed. So when we look at women's diaries from the period, you'll notice there's often a two-week break following the birth of their children, or sometimes the husband will start writing in the journal for them, uh, because they're literally seen as sort of too weak to even be able to write. But the flip side of that was poorer women, working women, obviously didn't have the option of resting for two weeks. There was very few maternity rights ingrained in law. So there was no statutory right to maternity leave or maternity pay. So many women would go back to work very soon after giving birth. And even if women weren't working, they often had large families that they had to support and somebody had to do that domestic labour. So it was really sort of opposite treatments for women at different ends of the social spectrum. That's really fascinating. And I'm really intrigued by this idea of confinement because like you say, in some ways, lying in bed for two weeks and have someone waiting on you sounds quite quite wonderful. But, you know, it's interesting you say that they were almost literally confined, kept away in a dark room, not allowed to even write. And you can absolutely see why that could have triggered mental health problems. Yes, absolutely. You know, no stimulation whatsoever. And, and certainly, I think without even being able to read a book, it must really be quite a sort of stultifying time and juggling all of those kind of emotions of new motherhood while you're pretty much confined to your room with very little social interaction, for example. So no opportunities to discuss all of those emotions with other mothers, for instance, I think must have been quite difficult, quite isolating. 
And were the sort of middle class and upper class women, were they looking after their babies during that two week period? Well, it depends, again, partly on income, wealth, status and so forth, uh, on how many servants they could afford within the households. If you take somebody like Queen Victoria, the aristocracy, they tended to have servants performing almost every single aspect of the motherhood role for them and that included breastfeeding of course you know amongst the aristocracy in particular wet nursing remained fairly common throughout the period so somebody would come in and feed the baby for you sometimes the baby would be brought to you for a short time or for short periods each day but essentially all of the direct care of the infant was being carried out by other people again women who couldn't afford domestic servants or indeed who worked as domestic servants themselves would have to carry out that maternal labour. And so it's a really sort of, it's really determined by class status. And of course, the flip side of aristocratic women using wet nurses was that those wet nurses had to do something with their own babies. Mm -hmm. So those babies were often put out to nurse or put out to so-called baby farmers, which actually put them in quite a bit of danger. So there was a real sort of exploitation in a sense of the working class women in terms of carrying out the maternal labours for the middle and upper class women. So it's a real kind of parallel worlds really where if you're upper class the idea of getting out of bed might possibly kill you but working class women were expected to go straight back to work and cook for 10 children or whatever it was that they were doing and just carry on. Yes, absolutely. And there's probably some middle ground, which is which is hopefully closer to where we are today uh, in that, you know, you're not sort of entirely confined to your bed and forbidden any kind of stimulation, but also that you're able to rest because we have maternity rights in place now that mean we don't have to go straight back to work. It sounds from what you're saying that there's two completely contradictory attitudes depending on which class you were from. Yes, absolutely. So if you look at the advice literature from the period, that tends to be aimed predominantly at middle and upper class women. It was obviously targeting women who were able to read, could afford to purchase these books, had the time to be able to read these books as well. Uh, And that really pushes this view of the postnatal period as a time when women should really rest and so forth and shouldn't sort of overexert themselves. But as you say, you know, there are double standards at work because the Certainly the reality was that working women had to return to work and and there were stories you find of women talking about their own experiences of returning to work in some cases within 24 hours of giving birth. My goodness. So yeah, it was really, as you say, it was two different worlds really. And what type of work were these women getting up 24 hours later to do? Because presumably, you know, they're not going to sit at the desk. No, absolutely not. So not all working class women worked themselves. A significant proportion of them did stay at home and raise the family, but that in itself often involved hard domestic labours. You think about the process of doing the laundry in the time before washing machines and so forth. It's obviously a very kind of different task. You think about the fact they had large families to raise, which increased the amount of labour that needed doing. Those women that did work often would either be in the factories in industrial towns, particularly, you know, in the north like Manchester and so forth or they would be working as domestic servants themselves so I mean in terms of where we are today obviously we've made sort of vast strides forward but arguably perhaps not quite far enough I'm just wondering whether you think there's anything that used to exist or attitudes that we used to have back in the Victorian times that actually possibly were better than some of the ways we go about treating the postnatal period today or should we just be glad that that's well in the past and we've moved on (laughs) 
I think probably the latter. I think it's difficult to point to any practices really that you could say were an improvement on today. And of course, that is partly to do as well with sort of progress in terms of medical knowledge and and medical technologies and so forth. So, you know, the postnatal period might also be a time of very difficult physical recovery because of some of the practices that we use during childbirth around particularly interventions. It could also be really a time of grief because infant mortality was so high. So, you know, an average of 20% of infants would die within the first year of life. Many of those would die within the first few days weeks of life and of course there was a higher proportion of stillbirths as well so and, and women had to recover this they, they still were in that postnatal period you know so I think on the whole it's probably safe to say that we're better off today <laughs> but I'm really intrigued by this concept of rest and I think confinement you've argued the case well probably took that too far where did that come from that idea that women were sort of delicate after birth and they needed to be protected. How long into history had that been going on? Is that like a uniquely Victorian idea or is that an idea that's been going for centuries? Well, it's certainly an idea that was particularly pertinent in the 19th century. And in part, that was a response to the emergence of the first wave feminist movement from the sort of 1850s onwards, which campaigned for greater rights for women. And one of the counter arguments against that movement was that women's bodies were designed to carry out particular functions, that those functions such as childbearing, pregnancy, lactation, and so forth, used their energy and didn't leave them with any energy for going to university, for example, or entering the professions. And there was a sort of relatively widespread acceptance that men and women were designed for different roles. And that idea that women's role was primarily reproductive, maternal, was really quite pervasive. So, you know, on top of that, the periods in which women were menstruating, lactating, pregnant, or shortly after giving birth in the postnatal period, they were seen as being particularly risky for women because those activities used up so much of their energy. So they were seen as being particularly dangerous times in terms of physical health, but in terms of mental health as well. That's fascinating. And, you know, obviously, that's an incredibly sort of misogynist view uh, of women. But can't help but think there is a little grain of truth in the fact that it is really exhausting sometimes to just have a period or, or have a baby. And do you think that some of these slightly what we consider kind of madcap Victorian ideas, actually, there is a possibly, you know, you can sort of see where it came from. There might be an element of truth in there somewhere. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I was part of the generation that grew up being told we could have it all, you know, you can have the career and you can have the family and, you know, there's no problem with that. And I had always sort of completely accepted that. And then after I had my first child, I had this moment of realisation where I was just completely exhausted. I felt like my brain had turned to mush. I was, you know, my job involves me using my brain. And I had sort of these moments of panic where I thought, gosh, I can never go back to work. And it was a real eye opener because I'd spent so long teaching about the Victorian period and I'd always really casually dismissed this idea that women couldn't be university educated, you know, and laughed it off. The idea that women were so overburdened by uh, everything that's associated with childbirth and mothering. Uh, And I suddenly realised that (laughs) maybe there was something in it after all, Um, because that period, that postnatal period, you know, you're right, it's completely exhausting. You know, if you're not sleeping, cluster feeding if you're breastfeeding it really does sort of leave you feeling quite exhausted 
And so you, you suddenly you think, oh, maybe the Victorians were right. I did sort of come around to the idea that that wasn't the case. But <laughs> I mean, the idea that you could have gone immediately back to work like some Victorian women were forced to do is, is quite unimaginable. Yeah, we're very lucky, really, in 21st century Britain. Yes, absolutely. We are very lucky. And with confinement, obviously, that was a big thing for certain classes throughout the Victorian era. When did it end? When did we move into this modern era of, you know, you get back up if you have your baby and crack on? I think with the, some of the risks that were associated with childbirth diminished as the 20th century progressed, you got legislation which gave women a, a kind of legal right to rest, in a sense, by preventing them from going back to work. So I think gradually there was a recognition that this type of confinement that was being prescribed in the late 19th, mid to late 19th century was really overly prescriptive and unnecessary, particularly with research into postnatal maternal health. And of, of course, today, you know, you, you can be out of hospital within a few hours of giving birth. The recommendation is still to rest, but obviously we don't, we no longer recognise the idea that you might overexert yourself by reading a novel, for example. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think there's a line. I think the idea that you really take it easy for a couple of weeks is is a very valuable one, but yeah, not even being able to pick up a pen or your, or scroll on your smartphone. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't an option for the Victorians, obviously. Yeah. No, obviously not. <laughs> a little bit about your own experiences being a mum then but I just wondered was this an area that you were always interested in have you been researching and teaching in this area your whole career or is it something that your own experience is particularly triggered and interested oh it's absolutely to do with my own experience so I'd, I'd worked on the Victorian period for many years you know that's that was my area of um, specialism I worked at mainly on Victorian popular literature actually before I had the children and I think it was probably inevitable that once I had children myself I would start to reflect on how Victorian women experience pregnancy and childbirth and so on and then after I had my third child her birth was quite difficult so I ended up with an emergency c-section and I remember thinking you know well we wouldn't we wouldn't have survived this we wouldn't Mm. have survived in the 19th century and that's really sort of started to lead me down the road of looking into how women experience pregnancy and childbirth how they experience it on a kind of practical level but also on an emotional level as well and of course you see a lot of parallels there Uh, in terms of our own experience. So while we've moved on a lot in terms of the medical treatment of pregnancy and maybe wider sort of cultural attitudes towards pregnancy and motherhood, there's still a lot of parallels in the way that we as mothers respond to having children, having babies. So what sort of things are still the same, do you think? For the book that's coming out next year, I've looked at a lot of women's diaries and letters And it's really touching, I think, to find the references in there to babies' firsts, you know, so the first step or the first word and so forth. Emma Darwin, who was um, Charles Darwin's wife, in her diary records the weeks of her pregnancy. And it made me think about the smart apps that we use, smartphone apps that we use now that monitor the weeks of our pregnancy. So it's little things like that, really, um, that that sort of you think, oh, okay, the, the emotions around motherhood haven't changed as much as some of the other things and that's a really nice thought I think to hold on to you know mums feeling those same highs and lows of being a new mum that we are today yes absolutely I think one of the things that does sort of get thrown at women a lot is this concept that women have been having babies for 
hundreds of years, thousands of years. And it's often used in a slightly patronizing way, I think, to sort of be like, well, they didn't have epidurals, they didn't have C-sections. And I wondered how far that is true. I mean, were there any kind of medical interventions like that 200 years ago or 150 years ago in Victorian times? Or is this a sort of modern phenomena, the idea of sort of medical intervention in birth? There were absolutely interventions, but they were different for the most part to what we might experience today. And, you know, women didn't have epidurals because it wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. And if it had been an option, lots of women would have taken the epidural. There was a lot of debate, in fact, over pain relief in childbirth, particularly in the second half of the 19th century when chloroform started to be used. And I mean, to be fair, that is quite dangerous for both the mother and the baby, but it provided women with pain relief. And, Mm. you know, women speak in their diaries about the unimaginable pain that they experience in childbirth sometimes. And some of the interventions were you know, really horrific. So, I mean, in many respects, it was a really horrific time. And a good birth in the 19th century really came down to luck. But to some extent, again, it was to do with social status and maternal health. So poorer women, for instance, were more likely to have suffered from rickets, which could deform the bones of the pelvis and make delivery incredibly difficult. So they were more likely to have these kind of terrible interventions. Gosh. I mean, that all sounds horrific and makes me feel very glad, actually, that we live in the modern world with modern medicine. And, you know, I think it's very easy to feel that medicine and and the science behind it is quite behind when it comes to women's issues and um, maternity issues, particularly. But actually, hearing you talk about how horrific it was back then (laughs) makes me feel quite glad that at least we have made quite a bit of progress, even if not as much as other areas of medicine. Yeah, there's still progress to be made, of course. And, but I think certainly when you compare the, you know, then and now, you do end up feeling quite thankful. The other area that's, that I think there's been huge progress is around women's agency and choice when it comes to pregnancy, childbirth and motherhood more generally. Um, and also women's access to knowledge about childbirth. So in the 19th century, some women went into labour without knowing what was going to happen literally without knowing where the baby was going to come from which I can only imagine must have been incredibly traumatic so there's a few accounts of women thinking that the baby is somehow going to come out through the navel even as they're going into labour and things like that so there was a lot of ignorance again it was to do with women being essentially denied access to education and to types of material which were seen as inappropriate for for women to be reading but ironic when it concerns their own bodies of course absolutely and is that something that is uniquely Victorian because I think Victorians are known for their being very prudish and you know not wanting to expose any flesh or ever talk about intimate relations and that sort of thing but I mean I just find it very strange considering where I live is a area of Victorian housing and it used to be an area where there were lots and lots of working class families living in very close quarters and they all had like 10 children and so presumably being around people giving birth was something that happened all the time to these women and they must have seen or assisted or heard their neighbours having babies constantly. Um, So I'm just wondering whether how these two completely opposite ideas worked in reality, this sort of idea that women weren't to, to know anything but actually probably realistically saw and witnessed and experienced them for themselves multiple times over. Yeah, I think women's experiences, again, varies hugely in that respect. So it's quite interesting when you look at advice literature, particularly sort of before around 1880, because you have this advice literature, which is aimed 
specifically expectant mothers, but which doesn't address what happens in childbirth. And sometimes it will move from the sort of late stages of pregnancy to say, once the baby is delivered, rest composedly on your back. And the whole <laughs> the whole process of delivery is completely effaced. That did begin to change a little bit towards the end of the century. So women were being given more information in advice literature. And of course, what hasn't survived is the oral traditions of sharing information about childbirth. But we do know that some women remained ignorant of what happened during childbirth because of the letters and diaries that exist. There's one that I looked at for the book, which was the daughter of a midwife who was never told how babies arrived. So (laughs) I think there were quite deliberate attempts to conceal childbirth from women before they actually had children themselves. And if you look at recommendations for who should attend a birth, it's always married women. You should never have a woman who hasn't given birth herself attending a birth presumably because you'd scare her into never having children herself. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. And it's really interesting that you say that the literature then was sort of pregnancy, pregnancy gap, and then postnatal period, because I feel having looked at quite a lot of the maternity guidelines from around the world for the modern day, sort of 2020 onwards, a lot of that advice is very, very focused on pregnancy, very, very focused on birth and everything that happens in the birth. And then there seems to be a huge gap where the postnatal period just isn't mentioned at all and it goes straight into baby development. So it's weird that our focus has shifted, as it were. It's almost like postnatal period is the taboo bit now. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's right. I remember coming home with my first child and I sort of felt like I'd been abandoned and I didn't know what to do with this baby. You know, you have the postnatal checks, of course, but I think there are still silences around certain aspects of maternity, but I think around postnatal mental health as well, it's, it's still seen as something of a taboo to say that you're not coping, to say that you're struggling. I think many women perceive that as a sign of weakness in themselves when you're trying to get to grips with being a new mother. It's very, very difficult to deal with, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. And in the literature and the texts and letters and diaries that you've studied, how do women talk about their postnatal health? Because another thing that intrigues me is if you're having sort of 10 or 14 children like Queen Victoria, you know, nowadays we talk about there not being enough information out there about, you know, incontinence or prolapse or that sort of thing. But presumably if you've had 10 children in 15 years, you're going to have some issues. Is there any reference in any of the documentation about that and how women cope with that sort of thing? So the references that I found to issues like that have predominantly been in case studies, medical case studies of childbirth. I don't think I found any references to women talking on that sort of personal level about the problems, physical problems they've experienced following childbirth. Of course, you're absolutely right. It it absolutely would have been a problem. But on a personal level, I I haven't found evidence of of women talking about that in their letters and diaries. They'll often be very sort of vague, sort of saying that they've recovered well. I'm as well as I could be, you know, Mm. following following the arrival of the child. But no, those very sort of detailed references to the postnatal body are, are really absent. And presumably that's not because women 200 years ago didn't have any health problems. It's because it just wasn't normal to talk about. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. As as you say, I mean, in the case studies, we see evidence of it. I mean, there's some terrible case studies of women who were very badly injured through the use of instruments during childbirth, who then experienced very severe incontinence afterwards that couldn't be fixed 
you know, they couldn't mm-hmm. be addressed. There was, there was not much that could be done about it. So certainly women did experience postnatal problems, but it was something that wasn't discussed. That's really sad, isn't it, to think about that all those millions of women just suffering in silence. Yes, absolutely. I think a huge part of motherhood today is talking to other people who are going through something similar. And I'm sure, you know, again, that oral tradition did exist to some extent between women in the 19th century. You know, the fact that it's not recorded in letters and diaries is is not necessarily evidence that it wasn't talked about at all. But I think certainly there wasn't the same sense of community between mothers in that respect. And And the openness with which today you can talk about these issues certainly wasn't there you've done a lot of research into victorian attitudes to breastfeeding as well and i again i'm really fascinated to know how this works because again there seems to be the this real contradiction between the fact that presumably there wasn't a safe alternative to breastfeeding in that time but Victorians had this huge modesty thing and you weren't even allowed to show your ankles so presumably breastfeeding was frowned upon or, or was it accepted as a fact of life? Oh, no it was really accepted and encouraged for women to breastfeed it was often constructed as a kind of maternal duty it was sometimes constructed as a religious duty and actually the idea of modesty in women's dress applied less to the breasts than it did to the ankles but it you know to the legs which is a little bit of a myth anyway but I think the key issue is that you wouldn't sort of expect women to be out and about breastfeeding so it was an activity which might take place within the home but actually there wasn't that degree of modesty it probably almost less so than there is today. So you find references to women having the babies brought to them, for example, for working women to nurse and so forth. Um, But there are quite a lot of parallels in the debates over breast and bottle feeding in the 19th century that are quite reminiscent of what we see today. The huge difference, of course, was, as you say, that bottle feeding was not a very safe method of infant feeding in the 19th century. There was a lack of understanding around the spread of germs and bacteria so certainly until the latter part of the period infant feeding equipment wasn't necessarily sterilized or even properly cleaned and that could lead to diarrhea which was a major cause of infant mortality at the same time you had the emergence of various companies pushing infant bottles feeding equipment formula early infant formulas which could contain some slightly sort of dodgy ingredients as well so there was sort of a competition competing um, discourses around breast and bottle feeding uh, of course the the alternative to maternal breastfeeding was wet nursing mm. so that was the third option so there was sort of you know babies that were spoon fed or bottle fed some that were breastfed by their mothers and others that were breastfed by wet nurses and it's fascinating that you say formula existed then because I had no idea that the history of formula goes back that far I thought that was a sort of relatively modern 20th century invention but was that something that arose during the Victorian period then? Yes, it was partly to do with the wider sort of commercialization, I suppose, of motherhood, uh, where all of a sudden you had all of these products on the market which were advertised as being able to help mothers in various ways. So you, you get infant formula being advertised as very nutritious for babies. And of course, I mean, a lot of it wasn't actively dangerous, but a lot of it lacked the, any kind of nutritional value. What was it made from? Uh, often from cereal and uh, things like that, which would then be mixed with milk or water. But of course, there was an issue there around um, the milk wasn't 
pasteurized the water wasn't necessarily clean uh, and that was a major cause of, of some of the problems that arose from bottle feeding. It's really interesting to know that uh, that's been around since then and and presumably that was around then for the same reasons as now that you know very legitimately there are some women who aren't able to breastfeed or don't feel that they want to and this is an alternative. Yes I think that's certainly part of it you know prior to the introduction of specific food that was supposedly designed for babies babies that couldn't be breastfed for whatever reason you know often because the mother had died for example but sometimes because the mother had to return to work would often be spoon fed with a mixture of of cereal or bread mixed with animal milk so it kind of came from there but it was part of a sort of wider process of commercialization that happened in in the 19th century with you know the rise of the printing press and advertisements and the marketplace really for all kinds of things that could aid mothers and supposedly make their lives easier but of course it, it wasn't always the case and it's interesting that you said there that women going back to work because I think that's another element to it isn't it that women were encouraged to bottle feed so that they could go back to work and be useful to capitalism and work in the factories yes. and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And they really just had very little choice, really. So that, you know, it was an issue which there were some attempts to address in the late 19th century. So there was legislation passed to say that women shouldn't return to work in factories specifically um, until four weeks after giving birth. But it, it didn't really benefit women because there was no statutory maternity pay. So they were right. just told, you can't come back to work, therefore you're not going to have any money. So it was, you know, unhelpful, I think. Yeah. And could respect. they have lost their jobs as well in that period? Was there anything keeping their jobs? Oh, no, no, of course not. No, yeah. <laughs> I think the legislation to protect women from dismissal um, didn't come around until the 1970s, I think. Right. So, you know, I mean, and obviously there's still a huge pregnancy penalty today. So, I mean, it's still a huge issue, even though obviously today it's illegal to dismiss women from their jobs because they're pregnant or because they've had children. Uh, in the 19th century, you know, employers could essentially do what they wanted. And in fact, it was the fear of losing their job that drove some women back to the factories within hours of giving birth. You know, that fear that if they waited any longer, the job just wouldn't be there. Gosh, and that must be so terrifying in a world where really, as women, they had no real control over having babies either. There wasn't effective contraception. No, that's right. So, I mean, there was a lack of effective contraception, but there was also a lack of awareness of what might work in terms of contraception. Queen Victoria is actually a case in point. She really hated being pregnant. She hated having so many children, really. But she just didn't have any awareness seemingly of how to prevent pregnancy and in fact she was very opposed to breastfeeding and of course if you breastfeed regularly it can have some effect in terms of preventing you falling pregnant so she'd actually breastfed some of her children instead of uh, giving them to wet nurses then she may have avoided her falling pregnant quite as often but there was a lack of knowledge about contraception and of course it also depended on men being willing to employ those means of contraception Mm -hmm. as well and there was another issue was that marital rape wasn't criminalised in the UK until 1991. Wow. So obviously in the 19th century, for married women, they were not in a legal position to refuse to have sex with their husbands. Mm. So it was inevitable that many, many women in, at that time experienced a lot of pregnancies more than they would have chosen to do if they had any real choice about it. Yeah, and I think it's overwhelmingly evident isn't it that as soon as we did get effective birth control that women's number of 
ch- children women chose to have went right down to a much smaller number than the sort of more typical back then yes absolutely so was it a case that some people genuinely also didn't understand the link between having sex and getting pregnant or was that sort of understood but just not spoken about there's some evidence that some women certainly didn't understand the link so one woman talks about falling pregnant not long after she'd married and she'd started feeling unwell and she didn't know what was the matter with her and her sister said to her well you are married now and she still didn't know what was the matter with her she wasn't sort of getting the hint but I think broadly speaking there were there was some understanding of the connection between the two I mean yeah at least circumstantially people must have figured that out (laughs) over time yeah absolutely brilliant so I think you've probably already answered this question but Do you think there was anything that mums had better back in the Victorian times? Is there anything from those times that you actually sort of wish we still had today? I think the answer is probably no. But one area that's certainly given me pause for thought recently is around the treatment of pregnant women by doctors at the time, which could you know, be very, very problematic. But it's also interesting, I think, particularly in a context of what's happening in America, that doctors almost always privilege the life of the mother over the life of the child. Mm. So, you know, if a pregnancy was considered to be dangerous, abortion was illegal, of course, but women could seek medical help. So for instance, if if a woman couldn't deliver children because she suffered from rickets or something, the child would sometimes be delivered very, very early at a point when it wasn't viable, effectively ending the pregnancy. And I do think it's quite interesting that there seems now to be a pull in the other direction in some parts of the world to ignore the risks in some cases to the mother. And so, I mean, for me, that that's quite interesting because we think about where we are now in terms of progress. But when you hear some of the debates around Roe versus Wade and so forth, you you wonder how far we have progressed and to what extent perhaps there's a kind of regressive movement happening at the moment. Absolutely. But I wonder as well how much the Victorian valuing of the mother was less valuing them as a person and more valuing them as a commodity because if the mother lives she can have another child that was exactly it I mean I'm not suggesting for a second that it was anything to do with sort of feminist values it absolutely (laughs) wasn't it was really sort of quite a practical approach you know the infants were not necessarily likely to survive uh, in any case even if they survived birth they then had the very precarious years of childhood to get through whereas women could always go on to have more babies so Mm. it was a very practical approach but it, it still I think is sort of starkly different to what we're seeing today in in some places where women have been forced to continue with pregnancies regardless of the circumstances. And the valuing of the baby above the mother I mean obviously we all value babies and completely understandably but I think that might also help explain some of that cultural shift from you know the modern day perinatal guidelines skipping the postnatal bit and going straight on to baby care a lot of mums tell me this but they felt so important during pregnancy and during birth to a certain degree and then as soon as the baby's born everyone just only seems to care about the baby and the the sort of focus switches straight there so it yeah like you said it's very interesting that now it is the baby that we hold up and value above everything else and how much that's changed yes absolutely do you think part of that is to do with the lower birth rate that we have now and that children are seen as the like individual children are seen as more valued and more precious perhaps than the sort of many children that were born and many of which would die during the Victorian period? Yes, I think there's something in that, certainly. I think to some extent there was a sort of practical view taken 
of children in the 19th century. But I also think that there was a huge shift, particularly in sort of the mid 20th century, um, towards recognising children as individuals. I think there's been a, a huge shift there. I mean, it's not to say that the Victorians didn't value their children, of course, you know, and as I say, when you, when you read about some of the um, women talking about the love that they have for their children and watching them develop and so forth, that's very, very clear. But we think about children today in a slightly different way to the Victorians. As a last question, if there was one thing you could change about the world we live in, which would help new mums today, what would it be? I think what I struggled with when I became a mum and for quite a number of years was the sort of judgment that you get. And, you know, hands up, I think we all judge people and it's it's almost part of the journey. Um, but the pressures that women feel, the criticism to which mothers are often subject, particularly if your decisions don't align with other people's. So obviously, particularly around things like infant feeding, but also around women and work, going back to work, for example, I think I would try and remove some of the judgment that's aimed at mothers Absolutely. And that sounds like it has been a problem since the Victorian times. We've been battling these social expectations and conflicting ideas that people throw at new mothers. Yes, absolutely. And in that respect, I mean, the context has changed, but I don't think the pressures that women face to behave in certain ways and to be good mothers has changed all that much. There's a lot of parallels that are still there, I think. Jess's book, Confinement, The Hidden History of Maternal Bodies in 19th Century Britain, will be out next year. For more details, you can follow her on Twitter at Jess J. Cox. And I've put a link in the show notes to where you can buy some of her other brilliant books on Victorian histories. Now, I just wanted to say that this is the penultimate episode of this series of Mother Bodies. If you've been listening to the podcast so far, thank you so much. It's been brilliant to have you along for the ride. Next week will be the last episode of this series. It's featuring the fantastic Leanne Nichol, who is the author of a brand new book on postnatal health. And she has some really brilliant things to say about what's going on in postnatal health and what we can do to change things for the better. So do make sure you hit subscribe or follow to the podcast to make sure that final episode reaches your ears next Monday. Thank you so much for listening today. Please do like us, follow us, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps please the algorithm gods and means more people will get to see and hear what we've got to say about postnatal health. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to leave us a review, even better. Don't forget, you can also follow Mother Bodies on Twitter and Instagram at Mother Bodies, where you can get highlights from each episode and some sneak previews of what's coming up. Thanks again and see you next time. Bye.